Welcome to the Demon Drumbeat, where we discuss how we create movements that power digital transformation by sharing stories from the industry and our people. Join the Demon Drumbeat for game-changing insights and a community of forward thinkers. Subscribe now, click on the link, go on, do it, you know you want to. I'm Fran, I guess I'm a quite multifaceted person, I think. So on the one hand, I'm a snowboarder and a surfer, so I've got this sort of extreme sports and outdoorsy side. And then on the other hand, sort of quite academic, I really like thinking, I'm quite a logical person. So my background was in psychology and neuroscience. Um, so I did a PhD in developmental neuroscience where I spent three years putting electrodes on babies' heads and trying to figure out what was going on inside their minds, which I can say was quite a difficult thing to do, but was a lot of fun whilst I was doing it. And from there, I got interested in specifically ADHD, which is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And I was researching sleep habits in ADHD and and still teaching neuroscience. And then I got into making interventions for children with ADHD and poor sleep, which ended up being like a gamified app on their phone, which would help them regulate their bedtime routines. And I just got more and more interested in the actual development of the tech itself rather than the intervention for the children with ADHD. So I sacked in all of the academia and decided to retrain in software engineering and just really loved it. So I thought that I would go back to sort of a medical side or a health route side. But I've just been enjoying it so much so far that I'm quite enjoying the journey of developing my own tech skills rather than going back into that sort of intervention route. I think that's the most unique background for a software engineer that I've ever had. <laughs> I've met some people who've changed careers. Some of them actually more roles. So someone moving from QA into, you know, being an engineer or someone moving from being a business analyst to being an engineer. I think coming from academia and especially with such a complex subject like neuroscience, I don't know if it happens a lot. I've never, I should probably do some reading and find out, but do you still do a lot of research and kind of basically keep up to date with what's happening in teaching and in neuroscience? I love neuroscience. I don't think I'll ever stop reading about neuroscience. And I think the beauty of neuroscience and psychology generally is that it applies to everything. So even when you think about, I don't know, some of the tech things that we're building, I suppose I always think about the user at the end of it. So I'm always thinking about how a person will interact with whatever we are building. So th there are always opportunities to apply my previous academic knowledge into my work at the moment. So people often say to me that it, it's a bit of a weird transition, but I guess neuroscience is so heavily technical as well. So for example, with my PhD in neuroscience, we would be recording brainwaves and analyzing those brainwaves, which means sort of stimulus locking a brainwave, dissecting it down into a small manageable piece of data, analyzing that data. So, you know, for one baby, you would have 128 electrodes for maybe an hour's worth of recording. So you have to rely on the technology to allow you to process all of that data. You also have to set up 
the technology to be able to perform the experiment. So for example, with what I was doing, we were giving babies little buzzes on their hands and their arms to see what happens in their brain when they respond to these tactile stimuli. So we would always be quite heavily interacting with tech. You know, we we would be programming the experiment itself and then analyzing the data. So, you know, if we're talking about machine learning and data modeling, to a certain extent, I've done a lot of that previously in, in neuroscience. <laughs> it's very interesting. I think there is more of like a, a natural marriage between technology and neuroscience, as you, as you describe it. Sounds like there's a lot of data. There's a lot of interpretation of data, the manipulation and things like that. Have you found that having now moved into coding, that has kind of like increased your bandwidth in terms of what you can do within the field? Are you now thinking more about maybe the limitations of the tools that you've used in the past and how you could explore data differently, what you could have done differently, or what you're going to do differently in the future? Yeah, it really does give you really nuanced understanding, I think. The two really do play into each other. So I'm only a year and a half into my career transition. So I think at the moment, the logical structure of programming from data analysis that I previously do helps a lot with my ability to code. The thing that I'm getting increasingly interested in is the artificial intelligence side of things and how neuroscience and artificial intelligence sort of play into each other. But at the moment, I don't feel like I'm expert enough in my programming capacity to really know how I would uh, bleed those into each other. But I imagine this guides you, right, mm. in what to focus on because you know what the end goal is, what you're trying to achieve and what you want to be able to do. And I think, again, a year and a half into a career transition, there's a huge difference from when you started to where you are now. And I imagine being part of a consultancy as well means that you have way more access to people that can help you. It sounds like it's a really good place to be. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a really buzzing sort of community of people to get involved with, I suppose, that has overwhelmed me, really. So within Demon, we actually do have other academics that have retrained and that they're experts in data modeling. And so I'm able to have sort of intelligent and educated conversations with them about what these data models are doing. So yeah, I guess you're right. I, I have a sort of baseline knowledge of what data models are doing and how they work, which allows me to have a bit more of a higher level conversation with people about them. And I guess it's about understanding what your intended output is and then having sort of a baseline knowledge of how you'll get there in terms of modeling. It sounds like a nice journey to be on. You, you mentioned that you're very interested in artificial intelligence, machine learning, and all the buzzwords around how data is manipulated and interpreted. There's a buzz around the entire world right now about data. There's AI, ML, there's ChatGPT, there's every new tool built on top of it that comes out every day. It seems like every company now, every startup is rushing to build the next thing in AI and, and machine learning. With what you've seen out there, do you think there's an opportunity to improve the work that you were doing before? Or are we some way there to a path of being able to improve, but not quite there yet? I think there's really fascinating developments going on. 
So the two pieces of research that I've just picked up on recently are where they apply ChatGPT type machine modeling to brainwaves to predict what somebody's thinking, essentially. So these participants sit in a machine, fMRI machine, which looks at the brain activity during 16 hours of audio tape. So it's got sort of really in-depth knowledge of that person's language processing. And then they ask the participant to just think about things or listen to a story. And these models are able to fairly confidently get certainly the gist of what somebody is thinking only by their brainwaves alone. And I think that's fascinating. I mean, I think some people find that quite scary, but when you know the neuroscience behind it, you know that what they're doing is sort of simplistically modeling what the most probable structure of a sentence is going to be. And I think it's an amazing innovation, but I don't think that the application of it is going to be so as concerning as some people think, right? I think a lot of people are thinking that this means that it can read what you're thinking. So, you know, at some point a machine will be able to look into your brain and completely dissect what your thoughts are. Well, the the nature of human thought is that it, it's not even one thought really articulately happening at one point in your brain. You know, that's just your inner voice that you're using to speak to yourself with. But if you look into where those brain recordings are occurring in the different regions, that inner voice is quite different. So if they take the recording from just like a rudimentary speech processing area, then they might get something that's quite close to the audio input. If they put it in a frontal lobe area, which is an area that goes more towards reasoning and planning, the inner voice completely changes. It's still, the gist is the same, but the way that the brain is sort of using that information is much more reasoned. So, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. It sounds very, very interesting. I'm just at the back of my mind, I'm asking like, firstly, like, are there any actual use cases for that? Is there value in being able to predict either accurately and maybe not so accurately what someone is thinking? Secondly, what are the implications of something like that? Should we be concerned of the potential use cases? <laughs> it's a great question. And, and that's why people always go straight to, I guess at the moment, we're all quite um, suspicious of AI. And I think mainly because it's used so heavily in in marketing for us all, right? So the way that we know about it is the way that we are presented with different adverts or different content online, according to what we've searched. But actually with that specific piece, if we're talking about medical application, it has some really, really positive medical application. So for example, if somebody has been paralyzed due to an accident, and they don't have the use of their body, or maybe they don't even have the use of their mouth, but they still are able to think, you know, their, their cognitive capacity hasn't changed, then life would be amazingly frustrating for that person because they would be able to think normally, but they wouldn't be able to express any of their thoughts externally to the world. Mm. Well, if you had a device which allowed them to be able to speak through a computer, then suddenly that barrier just completely disintegrates. And Actually, one of the use cases is a similar sort of technology. It's not that exact one, 
they give it to a man who has a motor neuron disorder, who's lost all movement. And for the first time, he's able to interact on a moment by moment basis via this computer interface. So you can imagine his life will just be be changed. Huge quality of life improvement, I think, for the family yeah. as well, because before the technology, you wouldn't really be able to communicate with this person. And now you have another avenue. You mm-hmm. basically like given a second chance at being able to communicate with a loved one. And I think that that's a very positive, huge use case. Yeah. I'll dig out a link to the TED talk, this specific one, because it's absolutely fantastic and we should put it alongside the blog. And the implications, the negative side of it, or potentially negative <laughs> side of it? Well, the potentially negative side, of course, then, is that if somebody with with not the best intentions has access to your inner voice and your inner thoughts, they would be able to manipulate it. So if we go down the advertising use case... If they could tell what mood you were in that day, I'm just coming up with like a a stupid example, but, you know, say I was a young girl that had just been dumped by her boyfriend and they knew that, then I could immediately get advertised Kleenex tissues and chocolate ice cream and all of these things. (laughs) They'd be able to like really concisely take advantage of not just your behavior on the internet, but your actual emotional state and your actual circumstances that are actually happening to you in that life at that point. So more ammunition for them to build the gigantic profiles that these big companies usually probably have on us. I mean, definitely have on us. Yeah. Judging by the ads that pop up on our phones. I mean, I think regardless of what app you use, there's that famous saying that if you don't pay for the product, then you're most likely the product. And I think they're they're building that up. And what I'm thinking now is that, do you think current medical regulation would cover such use of technology already? Because I imagine that uh, while my family might be pleased that they can now talk to me through this machine, the availability of that data to other companies suddenly now starts being a concern. Mm. I mean, I personally, I wouldn't be at all concerned about that because the medical community is very highly regulated, right? So this this technology is not being used with people walking around the streets. It's being used for people that need that medical innovation. And there would be a very strict data use procedures and practices in place and the participant themselves would have to consent to how that data was used. So I, I think that's the thing. With my background, I know that there are huge ethical requirements that go around when these these technology are used within a medical practice. If they started getting commercialized, I really would worry. I would worry about how it was then used. But at, at this point, I wouldn't be too concerned. So if it's like strict use within the medical profession, then it's yeah. the current regulation should probably cover it. And I, I guess yeah. since it's heavily regulated, they would improve the regulations to cover use of such uh, systems. I want to focus more a bit on like your teaching side, right? How do you think that has influenced your approach to learning technology and and Mm. assisting in the career switch? Well, firstly, it was pretty much hilarious to go from being a lecturer to being a student. (laughs) I obviously had to become a student again to retrain. And God, I, I, I was like, you know, I was like the student that was turning up with the apple for their teacher, you know, (laughs) 
Because <laughs> once you've been, <laughs> once you've been in that position yourself as a lecturer, as a, as a teacher, you then really n- understand what the teacher wants and needs from you. So you sort of know how to do it from both sides. I think I've always been quite. A, I would probably classify myself as a lifelong learner. So this was really in quite a sort of structured way that I retrained. But I've always been interested enough to go and find new bits of information. So it's actually really nice to have an entire new field to sort of angle all of that interest at. Way more research to do. (laughs) Way more research to do. And I don't need to tell you or any tech people this, but I mean, the knowledge behind technology is like a Russian doll, right? You get a little bit of knowledge and then that sort of opens your eyes to how much you don't know. And so you, you train down that route a little bit more and... Yeah, I mean, it's a labyrinth of information to get your head around, but it's really interesting. I think one way that my lecturing specifically helps me with this role is a lot of it is about the communication of complex information, right? So when you're teaching students, you're not just thinking what you need to teach them, but you're thinking how you present that information in the best possible way so that they'll be able to take it on board and they'll be able to consume it. And certainly within sort of the front end development that I do, I think that really helps me think about how you structure a website and how you present content so that the user is able to click through it really easily and it all has a good logical flow. And when it comes to coding itself as well, just things like presenting it in a way that if if I do some coding, then somebody else picks up my piece of code so that they can understand what I've done so that there's enough annotation in there that it means other people are able to understand. Because I think as a novice, that's something that I've noticed that you can get a real variety in the complexity. There's no one right way, so everyone believes. Mm. And I think that's the reason why we invent so many different ways to get on the same page, whether that is... Mm like daily stand-up or code review or peer reviews or anything like that because I think there's so much in the field. But like, how have you found the last year and a half? Has it been very rewarding, very challenging, a mix of both? I have absolutely loved it. I think being a career changer, it gives you this whole new lease of life. I am still so interested in neuroscience and I still loved lecturing. So it's not to say that I didn't like those things anymore, but you do it for 15 years and to a greater or lesser extent. And so to a certain extent, you know, it gets more samey. You get, you know what you're doing the whole time. So to be chucked into an entirely new world, it's almost every single thing that I do. I get this real little buzz of excitement. When I was learning in the course that I did at General Assembly, I'd be telling my partner that I'd changed a button from pink to blue on hover as if I'd, you know, just won some grant funding from a proposal. (laughs) (laughs) Everything feels really new and exciting and you end up with this real passion for it. And I hope that's what also makes me a good employee because if somebody comes to me with a problem to solve or a new bit of work on a project, I'm gunning for it. I'm really there at the start of the race line. I've got all of these really innovative ideas and I really want to get my teeth stuck in. And Yeah, so I mean, I think changing careers has been probably one of the best things that I've done in my life. 
sounds really, really exciting. I hope it encourages other people to change. <laughs> and it's also just so nice, just going back to the neuroscience side of things. It's so nice that I have this new career, which I'm really enjoying and I'm really enjoying the practice of doing it. But there still is that interrelation, even within demon, but within technology itself, that means that I'm still able to think about neuroscience within my current role here. Do you have any big plans of what does the next three years, next 10 years look like in your mind when you imagine it? Yeah, I mean, just to become an absolute pro. <laughs> I really, personally, I really, really enjoy the front-end design aspect of things. So I really want to skill myself up on those and I guess just watch myself develop. Going back to that sort of learning piece, I can see how rapidly my knowledge has gone from nothing to quite adeptly being able to build websites and make some functionality occur. I guess in a completely vague sense, just really looking forward to watching that continue, you know, and being happy about doing it. I wish you all the best. And thank you so much for taking the time to sit with me today. Oh, thanks, VT. It's been a pleasure. The Demon Drumbeat, our podcast where we unite, inspire, and empower. Subscribe to The Demon Drumbeat today. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes and embrace the endless possibilities technology offers.